Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello again, everyone out in podcast land. It is Charles Marshall here with you, and it is May 7th. 2020, and I'm here live from San Diego, California, and I am happy to have Bill Padlow with me. Uh, welcome, Bill. Hi. Good to be here, Charles, as always. Thanks. Excellent. And Bill will be addressing a very profound topic today. It's one of these, you might even call it a deep a deep puzzle. It's certainly been puzzling how long uh, the Chase Wamu uh, arrangement, we'll call it an arrangement. Uh, They've been getting away with it with not a lot of legal scrutiny for more than a decade now. And uh, one of Bill's purposes, primary purposes in his professional life, and mine as well, and, and Neil as well, something we collectively share is to challenge the lenders and the scams that they have perpetrated. And I don't use that term legally. I also don't use it lightly. Remember, this is a topical interest show. So anything we say is not legal advice, but it's meant to generate Uh, topics of interest which listeners will be able to then follow up for more details with other sources of information cross-referencing what they hear here and where there are legal implications consulting with a licensed professional. So we are in the age of COVID-19 aspect. Looks like it will be with us for some months, uh, I think even saying some weeks, I'd like it to be weeks, but it looks certainly like months. I, of course, I'm hesitant to say years. That would be very disturbing indeed. Time will tell on that score, but certainly we'll be dealing with the COVID stuff itself all the government edicts, all the overlapping and sometimes contradictory policies. We will be dealing with them in the foreclosure world and in every other world for months to come. I am going to get into later in the program how lenders are now, in California anyway, using federal removals, which they've been doing off and on for years of plaintiff's lawsuits filed in state court. And one reason they're doing that presently is federal proceedings in California are largely moving forward. 
meaning the pleading schedules have not been entirely disrupted. Where at the California state level, that's not the case, and cases are largely stayed. I will get into some of the details on that. And this whole federal removal trend later in the program. For now, I encourage listeners to go to Neil's blog at livinglives.me and donate right there on the blog. Any amount that you're able to donate is appreciated. So uh, what Bill is going to be talking about today is, again, uh, we're getting a very deep dive into this whole topic of the Chase-Wamu merger of 2008, which theoretically was facilitated and, as it were, made legal through this FDIC facilitation. And it happened through a Chapter 11 reorganized bankruptcy, uh, which was conducted in 2008. Uh, So, Bill, uh, I I understand from you, and I I, I did my write-up on the show today with the kind of tagline that what you've done here is reverse engineer the legal process by which the handoff from Wabu to Chase took place. And it sounds like you're able to apply that even to a, a number of loans potentially. In the early 2000s, why don't you go ahead and get into the details of this deep dive and let our listeners know really what you've, you've established. I think you've, you've gone some way to establishing something that has a a game-changer aspect to it. So, yes, get into the details of that for for our audience. (laughs) Sure. And more than happy to do so. Um, Well, this this, uh, fact pattern, again, I've I've been investigating this thing for over a decade now, and, of course, I've been uh, investigating cases and testifying um, over the basic premise that the FDIC uh, did not acquire any loans, anybody's uh, loans that there's nothing on the books of Washington Mutual Bank on any of these loans that Washington Mutual securitized and sold prior to the FDIC receivership. So, uh, you know, to date, as we've been drilling down over the years, you know, we've been getting more and more clues, more and more evidence, and, and it's really become, you know, very obvious that that theory, what I just mentioned, is absolutely correct. And we were establishing that through uh, the presence of uh, investor codes that were now coming out and coming to light of who those codes belong to, um, all kinds of disclosures made in SEC filings and investigations regarding Washington Mutual's method of operations, how they were doing business, what they were doing, the fact that no schedule of assets had ever been produced uh, identifying any specific loan. You know, all of this evidence that's been, you know, gathered up and put together uh, uh, by myself and others, um, you know, over this last decade, it's it's been very meaningful. And back in uh, 2016, I wrote an article on my website regarding um, 
about 67,000, over 67,000 toxic loans that were originated and sold by Washington Mutual um, in some trusts called preferred funding uh, trusts. And, and I pointed out in that article that out of all the years of doing foreclosure investigations, I had never seen a foreclosure in the name of any of these uh, trusts, these preferred trust securities. And that's virtually impossible because these were some of the most toxic loans, uh, option arm loans, um, adjustable rate stuff. It was just the, you know, the, the exact stuff that polluted the market and brought the economy down. So the fact that I had never seen a foreclosure by any of these uh, on any of these 67,000 plus uh, loans, excuse me, um, tells me that you know Chase was obviously somewhere in there uh, conducting either judicial or non-judicial foreclosures, claiming that they owned these loans. Now. What I was able to do uh, is a bit of sort of, I guess you can call it reverse engineering, is that I was able to determine uh, that in 2006, I, I took a very specific uh, type of loan that WAMU did, the option arm pay option ones, the uh, negative amortization loans, uh, that they were you know, originating and selling and securitizing. And what I was able to do and I think I can duplicate this now across the board in all other areas in years. But what I was able to do is to take uh, the uh, total amount of option on loans originated by Washington Mutual Bank in 2006, which was a total of $42.6 billion uh, of, of loans uh, that they originated in 2006. And I was able to account for 100% of those loans in trusts, actual securitized trusts. So if any listener is out there or they know of anybody that's been battling uh, foreclosure or was foreclosed on who had a 2006 Washington Mutual option arm loan um, whereby Chase claimed ownership through the FDIC, I can definitively prove that to be false. Um, because what I was able to do was on $37 billion of that $42.6 billion, I'm able to positively identify uh, trusts that have the actual loan data within in those pledged trusts, for example. Um, and then on the remaining $5.7 billion, those are involved in uh, these preferred trust securities that uh, did not go through the FDIC because there's evidence that shows an abundance of it that those trusts went through the Washington Mutual Inc. bankruptcy estate. And, and so we've got $5.7 billion worth of 2006 option arms that uh, that escaped the FDIC and became the subject of repurchase demands and disputes by the investors against uh, the investors were suing Chase. Uh, then the investors and Chase got involved with uh, repurchase demands and all of that on these loans with uh, Washington Mutual Inc. within the estate. And eventually, they you know they reached some sort of a, a global settlement on some of those you know around later 2012. But there's so much evidence now to, that comes out of digging into that bankruptcy estate and all the the, the filings and everything else that, that was allowed me to connect a few of these remaining dots. 
And so uh, what's really interesting here is, you know, one thing that, that, that you have to understand, every one of these securitized loans, whether I'm talking about the 2006 option arm loans or any of the private trust loans that were set up by a, a Washington Mutual Trust, so you can name it WAMO 2007 or whatever the series is, they admitted that uh, they were never going to endorse the notes and they were never going to execute assignments, and they warned the investors that they're not going to uh, document any sort of a chain of title to any of these loans. And so now I'm finding out the reasons behind why they chose to be so – I always thought it was just ridiculously foolish. I always thought, why would any investor want to invest – $2 billion, for example, into a series trust that they were putting together through the subsidiaries and invest that kind of money when the underlying asset was never going to be perfected in terms of ownership of that asset. If, it, if the asset was a mortgage and a note, why would that uh, note not be endorsed and transferred and delivered to the trust as as they said they were going to do, but also disclosed that they weren't going to do. It just made no sense to me. But um, there's a long story here, and, and I would love to sit there and explain it, but it would probably take up a bit too much time on that. But um, one of the areas that, uh, again, I believe that I can do is reverse engineer uh, these loans where you can't find it in a traditional database source. So most clients, when they come to me or whomever else is doing a forensic analysis, they they usually will run the data through a Bloomberg terminal or uh, ABS net or some sort of a, a search tool to identify the loan data specifically to try to say what trust is my loan in. Well, uh, in this type of reverse engineering that I've done, um, I can now you know, identify 100% of these trusts, and I know that if you can't identify the 2006 option arm loan, it's going to be in one of these preferred trust uh, securities. Now, one of the areas that um, I've mentioned in the past when I go to court on these and the judge or uh, Chase's lawyers or whomever is trying to foreclose, they'll say, well, I don't see anybody else standing here today trying to enforce this. Uh, and so the, the courts end up signing off for Chase. Um, or Chase will make the offer, well, we'll just simply indemnify your honor, blah, blah, blah. Well, in these cases, especially in the judicial states like Florida, they know and they knew that not only were they not the owners of this, but these things were in these preferred trust securities that they were actually involved in uh, negotiating and disputing about repurchase demands, and they were fighting in this, trying to determine ownership for years and years and years while they were foreclosing. So what you can safely see now in these types of cases is, well, okay, Your Honor, no, I don't see anybody else here today, but I happen to know who that party that needs to be here and needs to be subpoenaed because this is where the debt was pledged or sold or sits. Um, and, and do a, either a, a cross-claim or a counter-claim or whatever to subpoena and bring these parties in and get to the bottom of it, okay? Um, and, I, and again, I'm confident that I can duplicate this uh, moving forward. So that's, that, that's something that I'm um, 
kind of happy to have had this sort of uh, breakthrough, so to speak. Um, now, it gets a bit more nefarious. <laughs> uh, within the last week now, um, I've started to see evidence and things have started to come together where I have got cases now where I can definitively say and show uh, that some of these debts, once they have been foreclosed and sold, whether at a judicial foreclosure by a sheriff's sale or a trustee's sale with a trustee's deed, it is exactly what we've uh, sensed and have, have known about in other case patterns, not just the Wamu Chase, but in this one here, uh, I can see the evidence where the debts are continuing to survive and are being resecuritized and sold after the alleged debt is supposed to have been extinguished through the foreclosure sale. Okay? So, th th this is a scheme of massive proportions. And where a lot of the bodies are buried and where you're going to be able to determine after the fact to prove if, if for example, uh, you had a loan foreclosed on by Chase claiming ownership to the FDIC and you had a suspicion that was securitized and there was no evidence of that, the, the documentation that's going to prove that they never owned it to begin with, it's going to lie within the tax filing documents. And specifically, a tax document that needs to be as a required document to be filed upon the sale and transfer of any real estate after a foreclosure and an REO property is called the 1099-S. And that document... Uh, is, re is a required man it's a required uh, reporting document if you were a, uh, if the foreclosing party or the transfer seller is a trust a foreign business trust um, which all of these Delaware New York trusts are t technically that's what they are they're foreign business trusts and though they never registered in the states uh, they are required to uh, file these mandated reporting 1099s is with the IRS. Now, uh, that is where I think if we're ever going to get any legal support uh, or uh, action taken by the government, um, it's the evidence and the things are going to lie a lot of it in the tax areas of this. But you know, I'm not really holding my breath so so much that uh, that the Treasury is going to take action and do anything about this. But I'm just saying, uh, in these individual battles, these are the types of documents that we need. That if you get your hands on them, it's going to certainly uh, bolster and help prove the case. Um, so so anyway. Um, that is the big news of the day, so to speak. Uh, uh, we know that the loans didn't go through the FDIC, and the FDIC is just completely complicit to all of this. And it's looking more and more uh, every day that they're either playing sort of ignorant that this failure was so big that they didn't know what how to handle it. They're playing that kind of um, side of it, and they're now, when questioned or brought to their attention, that, look, how could you give power of attorney authority uh, just carte blanche to chase to go out and assign and execute endorsements and do all of these things 
when you didn't have the authority or the ownership of any of these loans. How how could you play a part in that the way you have, where you're you're giving them authority upon which you had no authority in terms of ownership of this? And I think um, the FDIC realizes that uh, uh, at some point they're they're going to get called in on this thing, whether through a massive lawsuit or whatever, because their complicity complicit. Uh, actions in this is just overwhelming in terms of, um, uh, of, of of their role and what they've done in this. Charles? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you've created a good framework for uh, one, one thing that comes to mind, uh, kind of behind the scenes to use the intel to use what, what amount. I mean, you've got analytical tools that have that have ferreted out this information, correct? Well, yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, you have to ask the basic fundamental question, which is, you know, if if Chase acquired all the WAMU loans as, as has been their position for years and in courts saying, we got everything, we got all the WAMU loans, well, then, come on, how how is it that there are hundreds of billions of dollars worth of uh, repurchase liability uh, actions taking place over these loans, <laughs> right? I mean, if you got them all and you owned them all, then why are people screaming at you and screaming at Chase to repurchase? It means they were sold prior to. Um, now, oh, I got, I've got some real good stuff, and I just try, I just I have to re- bite my lip and just not say it yet, but I've really got some good stuff here that uh, I'm, I'm excited to share here in the near future, but um, it's it's looking crystal clear that uh, this this scam is is it, it's it's crystal clear uh, exactly what they were doing and how they're doing it and and it's all fraud. It's all it's all title laundering. It's all document fabrication. They couldn't pull this off without the FDIC's uh, turning the other way and giving them this this, this fake authority. The endorsements um, are clearly being applied fraudulently and forged upon copies of the notes after the receivership. Um, it's 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 incredible of of how they've been getting away with this and now. Based on these positions they've taken, they've ta- they've done depositions, they've they've gone on the record, and they've said, especially in 2006, option arm cases, no, nope, never securitized, never sold, we owned it, and now I can definitively show they have no credibility. They've been clearly lying about it, and um, we're, you know, we we just we need we need one judge somewhere to uh, uh, to put the gavel down on this and, and pay attention because uh, this has got to end. This is just this just can't continue. Well, I think with your analysis and, and your really strong intention to hold Chase and these other big lenders accountable, uh, specifically Chase here, we really have an inroad with you. Uh, having created this framework, we have an inroad that we can use. And once litigation fully opens up again, and of course, you know, borrowers, other listeners, people who find this information useful, uh, absolutely feel free to contact Bill. Um, 
the bottom line is that we're in a position where we can use some of the time that's available because of the COVID crisis to put in place essentially a game plan and policies and procedures to, to, to put this into the legal arena. Of course, this will take time. Uh, Chase, uh, meanwhile, will be coming with another foreclosure tsunami. Uh, that could be at only a few months away. There, there are dovetailing into the, particularly the California state situation. There are still what amount to, some places they're quite hard and and strict, like the Bay Area in terms of a foreclosure moratorium and an eviction moratorium. Other places it's a patchwork patchwork of COVID and other related regulations and edicts which are, are inevitably overlapping and sometimes contradictory. Bottom line, there's kind of a general eviction moratorium and a general foreclosure moratorium still going on in California. There were a lot of revisiting of dates in the judicial system, in the San Diego Superior Court, L.A., Riverside, Remember, California has about 55 counties, so typically 15, 20 of those counties hold the great bulk of foreclosure and other significant lawsuits. And virtually all those counties have COVID-related policies, some kind of their own internal lockdown, so to speak, restriction of court processes, restriction of court filings, all of that is subject to renewal and a recent renewal just happened, for instance, in LA, where there will be a revisiting on May 12th. Well, all the COVID numbers in California and the other COVID policies in California suggest to me, and I would imagine suggest the listeners, that there will be a continuation of the previous orders that will quote unquote come to May 12th and then either be renewed, modified, or expired. I think LA will continue to have what amounts to an unofficial stay of civil matters. And in some ways it's an official stay uh, because any, 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 any hearings which were pending in, and in April and up to May 12th, those are all being moved. Uh, and in some some counties like Orange County, yes, they're revisiting again their general COVID order. They're doing that fairly soon. Regardless, though, they won't generate new trial dates, even in unlawful detainer matters, until starting on June 15th. So a lot of matters have been kicked forward in the various states. So one thing that I have noticed is that particularly Chase, isn't that interesting? Here we go, Chase again. Chase has become quite a user of the federal removal format. They complain bitterly if a federal removal is used 
in a UD case, a lawful detainer here in California, the eviction process, if a borrower happens to use the federal removal process because of the manifest unfairness in the state forum of unlawful detainer cases, well, then that borrower is pilloried as as engaging, you might even say, in fraud or certainly misusing the rules. I think the contrary of that is true. Uh, of course, every case is different. Nevertheless, what Chase is doing where they're the defendant, and remember that's when you use a federal removal, is when you are a defendant. That's when it's available to be used. So Chase is removing a lot of state cases to federal court, and right now those federal cases are mostly in the four California federal districts. Mostly those are on a regular time schedule, regular calendaring. Hearings are typically being taken under advisement. There are no in-person hearings, and the the courts are close to the public. However, the the cases are not stayed, whereas in the state realm, they are effectively stayed. That's it for today's show. Uh, Neil will be back next week, and thank you, Bill, as always. You're welcome. Thanks, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.